0: Steve Bennett, Sportscasters Podcast, Michael Anthony at five. Good to see Michael making a nice showing here. Very underrated bass player. Makes it on his voice and the backing vocals. Billy Sheehan at four. Duff McKagan at three. Jeff Ament of Pearl Jam at two. Most underrated member of the band, Steve Wright. Steve is also a massive Pearl Jam fan. And a number one, Getty Lee. By the way, I thought what Eddie Vedder did, in if you guys saw that concert over the weekend, that Global Citizens deal, I thought what Eddie Vedder did was the best thing of the whole, the whole broadcast. Uh, the most heartfelt, the mo- most meaningful, the most real. Half of that stuff, people were lip syncing. Some, somebody made the point that Lady Gaga did this whole bit, and she was singing into like a $20,000 microphone that... You could see wasn't even turned on or was turned backwards. <laughs> J-Lo was apparently so blatantly lip singing I couldn't watch it. I couldn't. It's just not even going to go down that road. But anyway, I thought what Eddie Vedder did was awesome. Uh, so there you go. Thank you, Steve. <laughs>
1: Hey now, welcome to Season 10, Episode 8 of The Sportscaster is back. After a little bit of a delay since the last episode where we talked to Keith Law, who made his debut, kind of boring, if I'm being honest, and then uh, Adam Lazarus and I broke down Super Bowl 25, which was really awesome, I thought, and I reached out to some of the uh, regular listeners, Fred Cass. Bill McGrath, uh, John Lively, um, Eric Jones, some of the regular guys that listen for some feedback, my brother, and it, the consensus was just those are fun, you know, once in a while. They wouldn't necessarily want the podcast to be all of those, and I agree with that. So what we'll do is do those once in a while. I really wanted to do, like, the next one I wanted to do was on the 95 Braves because it's a anniversary. And I was starting to think, who could I get for the 95 Braves? But right now in the book club, we're working a book about the 95 Indians. And I think when we do that interview, that will kind of cover that. So I'm kind of back to the drawing board of what I want to do next in terms of breaking down a game or a season or something like that. We've done the 94 Rangers. And we've done Super Bowl twenty-five, so we'll see what's next. On today's show, uh, first of all, the first lady of the sportscasters, Jane Levy, is on the show today. One of the most important uh, guests in the history of the show. Uh, She's been on since virtually the beginning, 2011, and she's promoting her book about Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle turned 95 this week, so we'll talk to Jane about the Mick. Also on the podcast, Yaren Weitzman who wrote a book about the 76ers and tanking. Uh, We'll talk to him after the book club. Also, one last thing. Not sure what I'll do today. I saw it's the one-year anniversary of a discussion I had about mothers. Um, I assume probably because of the Mother's Day holiday. This is also the one-year anniversary of the return of the sportscasters after my first surgery of three And 289 days, uh, which Joe Buck was on, and I've been speaking to Joe and trying to book Joe to come back on. He has to do every other show in the world first, uh, and then I think he'll make time uh, for me. Also, Jeff Passon should be on soon. I've been talking to Jeff. As always with Jeff, it's just a matter of time, and if he has it, uh, we bust balls on Twitter all the time. Or, excuse me, on text. Um, Jeff will be on soon. And um, also the authors of the books, which we'll talk about in the book club. All right, I'm not going to go long off the top here. Not a lot going on. Hopefully, everyone's still staying safe. I know patience is wearing out. Uh, Do your best. Uh, But let's get started. Uh, Hopefully, you can relax for the next hour plus here. Let's take a break and come back with the first lady of the Sportscasters, Jane Levy. All right, our first guest today is from Roslyn, New York. She's a graduate of Bernard College and the Columbia School of Journalism. She is the first lady of the Sportscasters podcast. She first appeared way back in 2011 promoting a book called The Last Boy about Mickey Mantle, who would have turned 95 today. She's nice enough to join us to talk about the Mick and whatever else. A warm Sportscasters welcome to the first lady. Hi, Jane. Hey, Steve, how you doing? It's the First Lady of the Sportscasters. <laughs> you are so sweet to me. Did you get the crown I sent you? No. Oh. You sent uh, me a the... crown? Are you serious? No, it was a joke. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, okay. Well, I, I I could use one. Right, I should send you a crown. The First Lady deserves a crown. Um, I think so. I was watching on Fox Sports 1. They had WrestleMania 3 on, and I was watching some of it, and they had this... This guy named Harley Race, who was a big wrestler in the um, in Kansas City, and when Vince McMahon hired him to, since he was a champion for a long time, but they already had Hulk Hogan, so he obviously was going to be the champion. So they made him the king as sort of a sign of respect to his career. And um, at, at this particular event, they also had a queen, uh, but they were instead of calling her the queen, they were calling her the first lady. And I, I noticed she didn't have a crown either. So I, you know, first ladies okay. deserve a crown. Um, but I was thinking of you this week because uh, it was news. Well, actually, I, I should back up. I was thinking of you because I got this giant book from John Pessa called Yogi. I don't know. If oh, yes. I've heard it. very good yeah. things about it. I got that in the mail. And, you know, it doesn't take you long after you start thinking of Yogi to start thinking about Mantle. And when I think about Mantle, I think about you. And, and then even more so this week, he turned 95. And I thought, man, I remembered jane telling me she used to growing up in new york she that was her guy and, and i know she said she was little but i thought she's only in her 40s so i wasn't quite sure how i couldn't do the math on that with you being in your 40s and mick being in his 90s and i just couldn't work it out so <laughs> uh, I, it's
2: kind of you to say but i'm not in my 40s oh, that's for sure i had that wrong
1: <laughs> yeah you did <laughs> <laughs> but, but I did have it right that that's your guy, right? You you love Mickey. Oh yeah, yeah. That's... I love Mickey, and,
2: and 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 in a funny way, I mean, I've told this story probably too often, but um, it, my grandmother did live, and I've been actually researching this lately. Um, two blocks from Yankee Stadium, at the corner of 157th and Walton Avenue, which I come to find out in the olden days before the. Bronx became the Bronx, we know today, paved over tenement city. Um, Walton Avenue was an Indian path, so um, she was at the corner, but she was facing away from the ballpark. Um, I liked to fantasize that I was actually um, you know looking at the back of the stadium, <clears throat> excuse me, and that I could you know see um, just out of the corner of some unbelievable x-ray vision, you know, some portion of the game, which, of course, wasn't at all possible or true. Um, But I was in proximity, and I was born in a hospital that no longer exists called Royal Hospital. Um, uh, It was a mile north, I guess, of, of Yankee Stadium. And I was born almost two months prematurely, so they quickly packed me up in a what they called an isolette and took me over to Harlem Hospital, so um, moving me further away from my Yankees. But the best I could calculate, I was conceived on the day he um, hit his first major league home run against the White Sox, oh. not, at, not at the stadium. That would
1: have been at Comiskey. That's a celebration. That's one way to celebrate it. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, I was thinking about the last time you were on, we were talking about the, uh, the, the big fella. And, uh, that guy, right. We yeah. were talking about babe. And, um, and then recently I'm on this page, I think on Facebook called, it's just about baseball books. People post what they're reading. And I like it because I, if something new comes out and I want you know, I, I see it and people post about your books all the time. And, you know, I think about, uh, the Koufax book and squeeze play, which we've never really talked about as well, uh, but <laughs> There's also this, this mantle book is how we met, so to speak. You know, that That's first true. yeah, the first time you were on, you were promoting that. And it was also around the time that people were getting experimental with ebooks and I remember it was even free for a little bit, which would never happen now with a first run book like that, but you could even get it for free on ebook. So it's such a new format. But um Go back to that time and and, and writing uh the mantle book and and how mantle was your guy and kind of talk about in comparison to Babe Ruth, who's an icon in his own, but not necessarily your guy and what it was like to write about your guy and and your personal investment in mantle and how that compared and contrast with the other books you've done.
2: Compare and contrast sounds like an English test from high school, (laughs) but okay. All right. Um, uh, I don't know if they do that anymore. Uh, As you, no, from being generous and, and kind to me and, and talking about my books and reading the books, none of the three um, baseball biographies is what you would call a normal, uh, structurally right. a normal biography. That, you know, beginning, middle, and end just doesn't do it for me anymore. So the Kovex book, of course, was structured around recreating his perfect game um, which was kind of a crutch for me because it allowed me to, you know, you, you, you all, all I have to do now is write the first inning. Now all I have to do is write the first part of his sure. life and, you know, alternating. And, and as I said to Koufax the first time I tried to persuade him to help me with this. You know, I hated Sandy's guts because of what he did to Mickey in the 63 World Series and to the Yankees, I might add, the first five guys he struck out in that first game of the 63 World Series at the stadium. Um, And I didn't, despite being Jewish, did not feel compelled to root for the nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn. Um, You know, Mickey was my guy, and I identified with him. And that led to... um, my decision to do what I probably felt was very risky, but only in the you know writer, writerly sense of that word, which was to to alternate third and first person right. because I basically figured i couldn 't be dishonest with readers and not tell them how I had felt about him growing up, why I identified with him so much. Um, and the experience I had had, which was less than savory um, while interviewing him for the Washington Post back in 83. And um, so, you know, the book has... I, pi- I picked for for him, I think it was 20 days that were formative or transformative uh, in his life, um, one, of course, being uh, Game... Was it game two? God help me here, Steve. Game two of the 51 World Series? That was right. Yep, that sounds right. Um, When he and DiMaggio converged in uh, right center field at at Yankee Stadium on a ball hit by, of course, Willie Mays, and it was like an operatic triangulation of a moment with these three fabulous athletes converging on a moment that would transform Mickey's life and career forever because, as, you know, everybody knows, um, he caught his spike, having been told by Casey Stengel to go for everything because, quote, the day goes hurt, heel is hurting him. That's how people talked about back sure, then. Yep. And Mickey, of course, could, you know, outrun the wind back then. And uh, I I was fortunate to learn from um, some some folks who had worked in and around the Yankees, that the groundskeeper had actually forgotten to put the, I guess it was a cork top that went over the drain. Um, it wasn't a faucet as people thought it was. It wasn't a sprinkler. It was a drain so they could drain the field. You know they, that The field was actually canted a bit from the outfield wall down so that water would drain. And so it was an accident of fate, you know, that, that brought all these players, these actors to that moment. And Mickey um, caught, the, caught the spike and he said it felt like his knee went through the front of his leg. Mm. Um, and there were, there were several of the stories from that time talk about him actually passing out um, for losing consciousness for a minute um, uh, and he told me that he lost control of his uh, bodily functions, mm. so that's some kind of pain mm-hmm. to be in, and of course, it would define his athletic career and I think you know in many ways his his life um, from then on because he he then became the what if of our generation, What if DiMaggio had called him off? What if the guy had put the cork in the drain? You know, what if he had taken a different route to the ball or Casey had said, not said, go for everything. And of course, he was a very inexperienced, he was a rookie. He was a very inexperienced outfielder. I can't remember the specific number of times he had played right field. If I had known, I would have looked it up again. Um, you know, he'd been a rookie. Uh, he'd been a shortstop in in minor league baseball, and not a very good one. Um, so playing outfield, and particularly right field, in you know, a home game of the World Series in his rookie year, um, and you know that that injury, which really couldn't be diagnosed. Um, the way it would be today, because they didn't have the tools, they didn't have arthroscopy, they didn't have a way of reconstructing a knee. I mean, it was uh, it was uh, the terrible triad. He had ripped uh, the the uh, cartilage on both sides of the knee and tore the ACL. Yeah. And the only way they could diagnose that, and he would do it as a parlor trick in later years for kind of his friends and kids you you sit somebody on a table and you pull um from the knee out um and if it moves <laughs> the joint, you know Ouch. that you've torn it right. yeah well you know <laughs> if you've torn and and you know he could do that he could just do it for fun um so when they taped him up the way they did um for the rest of his career <laughs> um uh, sometimes to the point of you know it's so tidy his leg would bleed it was providing the external support that he didn't have internally from then on and of course also they didn't even operate on him right away they they he went to the hospital but they didn't um go into you know remove the torn pieces of cartilage until 53 um so what that means is he played on a defective knee, not just for the next couple of years, but with those pieces of cartilage catching in the joint and further eroding the joint. Um, so um, it was a cascading uh, sequence of, of 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 horrible accidents and decisions, and um, and it defined him as uh, what if. Um, And, you know, I think that's part of the mystery of the guy, and it's part of what makes baseball, you know, the great talking sport that it is. You know, what if, babe, had hit against black players? You know, I mean, yeah, what if? Mm -hmm. um, uh, What if Mantle had been whole? Uh, You know, what if Willie Mays had played his whole career in New York? All those things. Um, Mm -hmm. But Mantle's had, of course, this um, tinge of... um, sadness that accompanied him for the rest of his life
1: yeah i have a moment like that in my life like my appendix ruptured in 2003 and everything's been different after that you know so i was there's like that what if in my life like what if they took it out before it ruptured you know would it have been right. this way i think a lot of us have that so i think that's he's relatable in that way why I bring it up you know that you know he wasn't perfect and he wasn't a perfect he's a perfect person either but He's very relatable. When you hear things like "Oh, Babe Ruth," or excuse me, Mickey Mantle turned ninety-five. Like, what, what do you think when you hear about him? Like, what do you think about him? Do you, is there that romanticism of being the little girl and that's your guy? Do you think about the guy you, you interviewed in eighty-three? Do you think about the guy on how that Howard Stern would tease later in his life, who is sort of like grouchy and uh, what? Like, what, what? When you think about him now, like, what Mantle do you think of? Um I actually y- y-
2: think of um, the game I saw in may sixty two where he started out that season you know on fire. It was as if he was relieved that the you know the home run chase was over, the burden was off of him. It was all on Maris. Maris had prevailed you know in the one hundred sixty two games mm-hmm. to eclipse the babes record um. And Mantle looked healthier than he had looked in forever, and um, I can't remember, he was hitting really good batting average. I think it was May 18th, but I could have this wrong, and the Yankees were losing 4-3 in the ninth inning, Um, and I was going to go to my grandma's for her seven-layer chocolate cake um, after the game, and my mother had made me get all dressed up in a skirt that my grandfather uh, had made, and... I had a white turtleneck on, really a bad look, and an Irish sweater. It was cold, and it was cold partly because it was still uh, early, but as lots of people know, the stadium was built basically on landfill um, in what was uh, a marshy area. Um, off River Avenue. It's called River Avenue because there's a river there. And there was a stream that cut across uh... the infield of the stadium. And so it would get quite cool in there. Um, and so she made me get dressed up warm and, you know, to please my grandparents. So Mickey hits a ball to shortstop and he sees out of the corner of his eye that the shortstop bobbles the ball. There's a guy on first. Uh, I think it was Tommy Tresh, but I could be wrong. Um, And he sees the the bobble and he reaches for that gear of speed that he didn't have access to all the time, if hardly ever, and uh, tore the muscle off the... uh, I can't remember which muscle it was because I haven't reread this, Um, but he tore a muscle and basically collapsed in, in the uh, baseline with his hand reaching for the first base bag. And, um, you know, that that was it. <laughs> that, that Any chance of him reclaiming what he had been, um, you know, uh, was pretty much done in by that. And I, he said to me that he'd never heard a big place get so quiet so fast. There weren't a whole lot of us there that night, but... Um, uh, and I did go to my grandmother's for chocolate cake, but I didn't enjoy it very much.
1: You're dead on about all of that, by the way. The game was May 18th. It was four to three. Um, Zoyla was the shortstop. Yep, you're dead on about all of it. Then he didn't play again until June 26th. You're also dead on about how good he was to start that season. Because I'm just kind of looking, you know, quickly at the box scores here, um, well, more of the line, the game logs. The Mantle game logs on Baseball Reference, and it's like two for four, three for four, you know, two yeah. for four, two for four, two for four.
2: It was like the pressure was off of him mm-hmm. three at for the five. beginning of that year, yeah. And um, and he, you know, I, 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 and, and you knew right away if you knew anything about him. And I certainly didn't know as much about him as I do now. Uh, but if you knew anything about him, um, you knew you were seeing the best that Mantle could be. Of course, he was pretty good in '56, '57. Let me not um, say otherwise. But the best he could—he be, had been in a long time, and um, he just looked—you know—the like pressure was off of him, you know. Um, and to me, the the poignancy—is it poignancy or poignant? Poignancy of him trying to be what he had once been able to be, and not able to do it anymore you know, was soul-crushing to me as a 10-year-old.
1: There's that old, you kind of were touched on this a little bit, there's that old cliche of, like, don't meet your heroes kind of a thing. They could let you down. They could ruin the illusion. Did that happen well, I, to you? Well, I, I,
2: I, I actually wrote, you know, I wrote a piece for um, the Washington Post when I went to interview him, and this is when he took the gig at the uh, – claridge hotel where my parents had their one night honeymoon on christmas night 1941 um and he you know director of sports promotions and he was gonna host a golf tournament Willie was um next door at uh i can't remember which one he was at but um you know it was the typical former athlete gig that you did um and it, it, as you might recall he was he was inappropriate he was gross he was yep. profane and finally he passed out dead drunk in my lap in a in a bar made to look like it was something out of the Raj, uh in, in you know a colonial a, a colonial outpost in atlantic city and um and you know i was crushed i mean it was like sure. I, and i wrote if not then later it's one thing about how nervous I was to interview him. In fact, I think it's in that story um, uh, because may, may I say what he said to yeah, me? Oh when yeah. I, yeah, I, okay. Um, I, I, I introduced myself and I said, hi, I'm nervous. And he said, this is in the morning when he showed up hung over and, you know, an hour or so late for the interview. And he said, why did you think I was going to pull on your kitty? And it went downhill from there, you know, um, and so I, I did write that it's one thing to interview other people's heroes. It's another thing to interview your own.
1: Right. Did part of you want to give him a pass or make an excuse for him because no. he was your guy? No. It was a, it, no. 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 Okay. No.
2: What what did happen over the course of that weekend, there was this is, of course, when his son, Billy, now deceased, uh, had been diagnosed with the... Um, disease that killed Mickey's father, the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, that was untreatable when Mutt Mantle died in uh, December 1951. Um, but, um, you know, there was all this sort of self-fulfilling um, self-indulgence. You know, well, none of the male men, you know, past 40, you know, uh, might as well, you know, burn the candle at both ends. Right. Well, the, the truth is, that not all of the a mantle <laughs> died before age 40. Um, he did his best um, to join the crew you know, by, by with his drinking, but that too, you know, you can't absolve an alcoholic, which he finally acknowledged he was le- very late in life. You can't absolve them of, uh, you know, responsibility for how they handle their disease, but you can acknowledge that it is a disease, that it was genetic, that, um, you know, uh, he had an aunt who was found dead and drunk, and I mean dead and drunk, you know, mm-hmm. from drinking in her bed. All his aunts and uncles drank. Um, and, of course, you know, it comes to New York with Cafe Society in the 50s. That's what people did. They drank. And everybody wanted to be able to say from you know, the time he arrived in New York, um, you know, I bought one, I bought around for the Mick, and they weren't helping him, you know, right. um, even when he was sloppy and drunk already, oh, I bought around for the, and then they'd turn around and laugh at him and say, what an asshole he was. Um, and it's, you know, like I said, the, the thing that I think about now, um, I think getting sober under the circumstances that he did after so many decades of alcohol abuse, Um, uh, you know, he told me in 83 that he already had cirrhosis of the liver and it wasn't until 94, um, that he went for treatment at the Betty Ford center. Um, but you know, a lot of people wouldn't have had the discipline, um, to, to do that, that late in life. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. You know, not very many of the people who go through rehab stay sober for the rest of their lives. Now, we don't know what would have happened if Mickey had lived, right. but he's already dying of liver cancer, that, that the kind that's brought on by cirrhosis, and, you know, uh, lived, as Sam McDowell said to me, Sudden Sam, um, who's done a lot of work uh, with major league players and, you know, helping in them in recovery, you know, it's... Um, it's, he turned my head around. You know, I said, gee, it's tragic. He only had the last 14 months of his life sober. And he said, that's not tragic. You know, he, he died an honest man. He died at peace. I mean, look at the accomplishment. It's very hard to get sober and it's really hard to do it when you're hurting.
1: It was like he was living the Neil Young, you know, I want to burn out, not fade away until he decided, well, maybe I should try to fade away you know maybe the burning out isn't what it's all cracked up to be did he ever have a cha- did he ever make it up to you in any way did he ever apologize to you or did you ever in your well, interactions the next, past that did the, it you know no i mean you
2: know? I, I i did send him a copy of the story i don't think i ever heard from him um you know the the 83 story which was um uh you know he he told me all about his nightmares Recurring nightmares, and you know everybody's heard the one where he can't get back into Yankee Stadium, and he hears all his pals, Billy and Whitey and Casey, and he, you know, but he's locked out of the game. Um, but the one that you know um, just absolutely blew my mind was he was a he was a pole vaulter, and he's running down the lane with a you know stick in his hands, and he flings himself up into the air and over the bar. And as you know and he's up high he's you know he's as high as, he, as a person can go yep. um,
1: 50 stories and high. he
2: sees he sees all the people looking up at him, you know adoring and amazed, and then suddenly he's in free fall, and it, you know a better metaphor a better unconscious description of what it's like to be at the top in in you know of of, of a sport of a of a you know any business and then just lose it you couldn't devise and it, it, but at that he he told me that at the breakfast the morning after he passed out in my lap, trying to make his way to the promised land, as it were um and i I really scolded him, <laughs> which sounds very nice. um funny, but um I just looked at him and said, "You know." And he, he was there early, He was as opposed to the day before, he was hungover, but he he, he was there before I was in the little coffee shop, and um, I just said, you know, who acts like that? What kind of an adult acts like that? You've got to be kidding. And by the way, you farted in my face when I stood outside Yankee Stadium at age seven waiting for an autograph, and he says, oh hell, Jane, I'll give you an autograph now, and he Whips out one of these uh eight by ten glossies. he's has got pink golf shirt, and he actually looked pretty healthy. And he gets out his, you know, marker, and he writes, "Sorry, I farted." Your friend Mick. Oh
1: wow! Do you still have that?
2: <laughs> yes, of yeah, course. <laughs> of course.
1: <laughs> uh, I have the he article also, in front of He me. also
2: gave me his sweater off his back. um while following him around the golf course the day before. So he was you saying
1: know. sorry, right, without saying sorry. Right? Sure. Like being there early yeah. and he was trying to make it up for you, but he didn't have it into him in him maybe to
2: I don't think he was a mean guy. Right. I think he became a mean and profane and gross um uh, offensive drunk you know i mean he said and wrote horrible things on autographs you know your mom has nice titties to some little you know kid with on a ball i mean just all sorts of um horrible stuff but you know i i think um i think that was the alcohol talking and i and i think in a funny way he was asking to be uh, reprimanded. He was, he was asking, I think he liked it when I, when I said to him, who the hell do you think you are? Right. You know, what? um, because there's that famous story about the, the, uh, thing that was circulated for the seven, I guess it was a 75th anniversary of, um, the stadium. And, and it went out to all these players. Um, what's your favorite memory of Yankee stadium? And he, of course, answered in such a gross and profane way that it's become a staple of, um, you know, uh, the Internet. Um, But he, you know, described committing a sexual act in the bullpen um, and uh, in graphic and disgusting terms, and then signed it, Mickey Mantle, the all-American boy. And to me, that was, um, you know, a wink and a nod, who would have thought Mickey was capable of irony? But there he was, saying, "I'm not, I'm not that thing." I, you know, you see, I mean, he, in Atlantic City, he said, you're not going to write all that Jack Armstrong shit, are you? <laughs>
1: I mean, wow. he knew, right. he knew. Yeah, I have the story here. I'll link to it on Twitter um, so people can, if are listening, want to read it. But thanks to the internet, we still have newspaper stories from 1983. But there's a funny story here where you're talking to him about being nice, and a guy comes up to him and says he saw him strike out five times in 1950. And he says, see, I was nice. I wasn't even there in 1950.
2: Uh, yeah, and yeah. the guy named the pitcher, and was Mel Parnell, and and uh, um, I, he said I never hit off of him or something. I, I can't remember the exact – yeah, you know. There yeah. Are, yeah, see, I can be
1: nice. Yeah, I can be nice. Look at I let him slide on that gross air. And he also talks, I think, really interestingly about playing too long – And how when people introduce him and say he's a lifetime 298 hitter, he cringes. Kills him. Yeah, kills him because if he just would have retired when he, what did he say, 65? It said the year he thought. Yeah, 65. He should have quit then. He would have been over 300. Um, Let me ask you this. I I don't know if I've already asked you this or not, but we've talked more about this experience in 83. Um, But it seems like you're still able to. Go back to the. I keep using the the word romantic or romanticized. I don't know if that's silly to say or if that's describing it right, but it seems like you can still go back to those days as the girl and and think of Mickey um, the way you did when you were so sad at your grandma's house that he was injured that day. Like he didn't ruin it well, for think, you totally. Yet. It doesn't seem like.
2: Well, I think you can separate. You know, the person if you're a grown up um, from. The feats, you know, one person said to me at one point, well, how can you go from running back Koufax to Mandel? They have nothing in common, blah, 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 blah. And I said, actually, they do have something in common. They both played hurt and at the top of their their game and of their chosen profession um, without bitching and moaning and inspired their teammates because of it and were beloved by their teammates because of it. Now, Sandy, in contrast to to Mickey, um, you know, knew when to hang it up. You know, he was 10 years too early for, for Tommy John's surgery. If he had, you know, if he had been born 10 years later, he would have had the surgery. It would have been called a Kofax surgery, not Tommy John. Right. And, um, you know, God knows how long he would have pitched. Um, but Sandy has a quality that is unlike... Mm, Pretty much every other athlete, except maybe Martina, that I've ever I've ever, ever met, um, maybe Billie Jean too, um, and I suspect Federer though I don't know him. You know, he had a sense of who he was as a person apart from the neon uh, name and quotation marks. He just wanted to, you know, be. He had the imagination to envision a good life for himself, a you know, a complete life for himself. At age thirty, when he walked away from the game, um, a, you know, without being Sandy Koufax in in the public eye, without being Sandy Koufax on the mound, and that is a rare degree of self possession, because all these other guys, or so many of them, you know, um, are still at the top of the heap, you know, flinging themselves over the bar and and needing that feeling of, of being up there um, and being seen and being in in the press and, you know, clicks and this and that. You know, Koufax didn't need that to know who he was. Um, I, but so many of the other athletes that you come across do.
1: Let me ask you this, because you made me think of it when you were talking about the other athletes. Have you been watching The Last Dance?
2: Um, no, I have not. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on the And I'll tell you why. Um, I I'm I'm not much of a NBA fan. Okay, I used to be.
1: I'm not really.
2: I either, I, I, I mean I, in Willis Reed's era I was, Sure. But, um, the nineteen seventy Knicks um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they just had it. I mean it's not it's not that I don't I will go watch it at some point. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, clearly he was in control of that project. Yes, oh very clearly. Fast, yeah,
1: very clearly. Yeah.
2: It's 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 obvious that that yeah. that you know, whether he had charge of every uh, every edit, I don't
1: know. No,
2: you're right. But yeah,
1: he had final um, cut for sure.
2: You know, and, and I think and I'm not saying that's not okay if you're honest up front. Right. You know, and you say this isn't a work of independent journalism. This no. was a deal that we did together.
1: It was this or not? Um, so we did this.
2: Uh That's you know, it's okay. I always think you need to disclose your your terms right up front. You know, like I, I said in the mail book, if you're looking for in a, you know, a, a recount of every home run he ever hit, every catch he ever made, every base he ever stole. Go somewhere else. That's not what this book is about. And you know, and and the same with the Babe. I didn't. I, I others who had come before and who had access to people who, who he knew, um, and who had played with him. They could do the day to day, you know, beginning to middle and end biography extremely well, and they did. Bob Creamer being, you know, the the top of the game. Um, so I didn't want to retell the same story that sure. had been told and that I didn't think I could tell as well as it had been told before.
1: So, um, Especially with the babe, you know, right? I mean, it's a Especially, re- yeah. Yeah, because there's so much written about the babe. How do we reinvent that? And you did it beautifully. The sportscaster Thank here you. finishing up with the great Jane Levy, uh, the first lady of the sportscasters. Jane, we've talked about this one other time. We'll kind of start winding down on this. We talked about uh, the legacy, the the lineage of Yankee greatness, right? The way that someone's guy might have been Babe Ruth and then they were blah, the, the next generation or maybe their kid was blessed that their guy was Lou Gehrig. And, you know, it just goes on and on all the way to Jeter. And now maybe it's Aaron Judge, right? Um, do you ever think about the current Yankees? Or when you think about the Yankees or baseball in general, sports in general, do you think about that? Since you have a guy, right? You have Mantle; That's your guy um I, th- I have a guy too it's pavel burry i don't know if you know much about him he's a hockey player but um he was yes, my I guy do. i know who he is yeah, yeah he was my guy in the same way mantle was your guy um at that age and i would go to the memorial auditorium where the sabers play and i wrote him a poem and i gave it to like the equipment <laughs> manager to give to him and you know then i ran back to my seats and told my like, dad i bet he's reading it right now you know the period ended the, the guy probably gave it right to him um <laughs> so i had a guy like that too but do you ever think about that when you because I think about that when I think about athletes and people's favorite players. That little kid next door, you know, he's like 10 years old and he's a boy. He's, he's always playing a different sport in the driveway. I go out and have a catch with him or shoot a hockey puck with him. And I think about, like, who's this guy right now? You know, who does he love? I talk to him about that. You think about that with baseball players, with athletes. Do you think, man, I wonder what Aaron's like. I wonder how what it would be for him to be, to for that to be your guy. Um, I don't know. Hopefully you see. What I'm, I'm not quite
2: now. sure what you're asking. Okay,
1: I didn't think you did. <laughs> let me try. Let me try that again because I got carried away with the excitement of the idea of it. You had this guy in Mantle, and then after Mantle, um, you know Artie Lang. His guy was you know Thurman Munson, and then my friend that was down the street that loved the Yankees. His guy was Mattingly, and uh, right. you know then. My everyone's guy was Jeter for so long, right? And then now it's it's probably Judge, and I just wonder when you think about the Yankees or baseball players or athletes in general, do you think about these guys in those terms, in the terms of they're someone's guy? Someone thinks about them in the way I thought about Mantle, and kind of compare them in that way.
2: I hope they have those. You know, uh, feelings. Was um, that did I get it that time? Um, uh, you, uh, you know, I I I hope so because it's a good um that's a good thing to feel right. Um, but um, and and a good experience to have, and sure. I, you hope their dreams don't get crushed like mine right. did. Right. Um, and I think there are good people, you know, in the game. I I don't. I'm not in locker rooms. I'm not covering a beat. I I don't know the players the same way I as I once might have I know them from afar um the kid who really um impresses me in in that way is Juan Soto okay um yeah. because of uh, you know certainly because of his raw talent right. and how we're young he was zero, the yeah. way but I think the thing that really did it for me is I guess it was last year they were going to have a bobblehead day um and uh He didn't like the design because it made him look too serious. He said, I want it to look joyous. That's how I feel about baseball. And he Mm -hmm. made them redo it. Awesome. And that I really thought was fabulous.
1: You know, Jane, if I'm being honest, you know I have a guy right now too. You know, like Drew Brees is my guy, maybe even more than Bray was because Brees plays for my team. You know what I mean? And and he came to my team – I started being a Saints fan in 1987 and he signed in 2006. And in that gap, there wasn't a lot of success, you know, for the Saints. There was very little, one playoff win, actually, um, in all those years as a fan. And then he came, you know, and Sean Payton came. And they changed that for me. They made, all, I always say this, they made all my dreams as a sports fan come true, you know. And Drew Brees is the kind of guy that you you dream of you dream that that could be your guy right like wow could I have a guy like Drew Brees you know a family man that I I look to him for like how he treats his kids I want to treat my kids like that my daughter kid singular god just one but I have him and I met him um, on the field in the Superdome last fall Um, Joe Buck was nice enough to get me a field pass I I had had three surgeries last year and my family Um, sent me to New Orleans for a Saints game, and he was injured. He had a thumb injury, and uh, we basically bumped into each other on the field. And I I told him that. I said, uh, you made all my dreams as a sports fan come true. Thank you. And I said, I don't want to shake your hand. I'm too nervous. Can I hug you? And he said, okay. (laughs) I I don't think he wanted the hug, but he accepted it uh, graciously.
2: (laughs) That's great. I
1: I didn't know you had the three surgeries. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. I'm fine uh it's part of you know life with Crohn's disease but i'm fine but the the thing is is like with breeze is just you know maybe i'm too old for that but man it felt good to uh to tell him that and even though he, you know he was doing thumb exercises on the field jane cuz he had an injured thumb and i tell people that i just i sh- I, I hugged him because of his thumb injury, but really his thumb injury was an excuse to be able to hug him. You know, if his hand yeah. was fine, I would have found another excuse. Um, was he was he in pads? No, he was in shorts and a t shirt and a hat. I'll send you the picture. We have a picture together. Oh, he, that would be great. Yeah, I'll send you the picture. Um, but yeah, so I owe I owe it to Joe Buck uh, who was nice enough to do that for me. Which
2: I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Yes, that's a nice story.
1: Uh. Okay, let's get you out of here on this, in the words of Tony Kornheiser. What are you working on? Are you working on the next book, the next project? Is there anything going on in the world of Jane that we can look forward to? We know it's going to be um, years. We know it's going to be years because you're a, you, you take your time and, and research and all that. But is there anything you can look
2: uh, I have some ideas but okay. uh, the, the that I was pursuing, but the um, the current uh, the
1: corona health crisis has...
2: Kind of put them on hold, so mm. I'm not sure which, if either, will work out. So I may have to go back to the drawing board.
1: Okay, gotcha. All right, well, fair enough. Thank you for this. Do you have any questions for me?
2: Hmm. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with the season?
1: What season? <laughs> uh, the baseball. Yeah, season? yeah baseball. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they're going to try to find a way to do it. Eighty games sounds about right. I, I'd assume there won't be fans. Um, I think with the way some of this, all the states are different. I wonder if we could see a model like Jeff Passan has reported, where they pick a few locations. You know, maybe the where maybe they'll split it by Arizona, Florida, instead of splitting it National League, American League. I think they'll find a way because they're motivated to, it, you know, I think they'll settle the split thing that they're, you know, arguing about now because um, I think the, I think the owners the are desperate to get the, the playoff yeah. money. Yeah. Everyone's um, desperate, you know, and everyone's desperate. There are billionaires and millionaires that are desperate, but everyone's getting desperate, right? I mean, people need to make a living. It's hard to just, not know, make a I living. I don't think they should them. play
2: personally. I, I think the I don't know the, enough. enough. I I'm not, I'm I, not
1: smart enough. I could never make that call. I'm glad I don't have to. You know what I mean? I'm glad well, I don't have yeah. to be the one because I have no idea. You know, it's yeah. above my head. But I hope we get something because selfishly, I'd love to watch it. But I also hope they're safe. I mean, I hope we don't have like Juan Soto dying of Corona or something because they wanted to play. That would be
2: well. Sean awful, Doolittle, you know I mean? Obi Wan, you know, immediately came out. And talked about the issue, many many of the issues that would be confronting, um, you know, not just medical issues, but ethical issues. He's another really, really great guy um, and a reader. I mean, he talked about the ethics of, you know, directing God knows how many tens of thousands of tests to um, major league baseball players. And coaches, and front office people, and you know uh, the trainers, and God knows who, everybody affiliated, so that they can be tested multi times a week. Right. You know when when people are dying because they can't get tested.
1: And in so, March, I, in March, that would be, of course, but maybe by July, that's not as much of an issue. See, that's the thing. Like, it's so hard yeah, to project. But they have to do what changes have every to day. Do what,
2: based on what's available and what's available and what's being done is not enough. So that's my feeling. uh, I got to go take Betty, who's my dog, who is the great third baseman. Actually, she, she actually positions herself under a ball, like an outfielder. (laughs) She, she moves her body so that she's always coming in and, in position to throw the ball, which she's actually trying to do.
1: Thank you, Jane. I will, uh, I will reach out again soon, and we can do this again. Not too soon. I'll give you your space and your time. But uh, every once in a while, we need uh, the First Lady to check back in. So I appreciate it. And I'll I'll work on the crowd. I will work on the crowd.
2: Yeah, please do. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.
1: So, Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points hauling Hollering down She was a black hat beauty With big dark eyes And points all her own Sudden way up high Way up firm and high Speaking of birthdays Great Bob Seeger Turned 75 years old I think last week Something like that. Thanks to Jane for being on the podcast today. All right, let's get to it. The book club is busy, which means I have a lot of reading to do. First, a new book. Uh, A guy named John Pessa, he wrote a book called The Game. And I think John came to me uh, and said, hey, I have this book called The Game. Can I send you one? Could you be on? And we did that, and it was a great book about the business behind baseball. Just a really good read. And this time around, I reached out to John and said, hey, John, you have this new book called Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. You want to do something? And he said, yes. And I had a book at the front door in like two days. Uh, My wife thought it was her Mother's Day present and was uh, not happy to find out uh, it was a book about Yogi Bear instead. But Uh, We'll be working this one, and I will be reading it, and then we will talk to John about it, and I look forward to that. Also, The Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant by Brett Ebert and Pat Lepard. Uh, Pat was on the Dark Side of the Ring, the um, Dino Bravo episode, uh, and he said his name. So I got to find out that it's Lepard and not Pradi or whatever I was saying before. Uh, those two books in the book club right now. Also, a third book, uh, and this is the book I was talking about earlier, about the um, 1995 Cleveland Indians, and it's called uh, Cleveland Rocks. and, Or, excuse me, Cleveland Rocked, with a D. The Personalities, Sluggers, and Magic of the 1995 Indians, and that's by Zach Meisel. Uh, We'll have Zach on to talk about this relatively soon. I'm almost finished with this one. So those are the three main books right now. Cleveland Rocked by Zach. uh, The Eighth Wonder of the World by Pat Lepard and uh, Bernard Ebert. And Yogi by Jan Pessa. Uh, That means we need to finish one and the one we need to finish today uh, is the book by Yaron Weitzman. Um. We've been talking about how his book, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the most audacious process in the history of sports uh, was basically released simultaneous with the beginning of the pandemic. Um, Jeff Perlman reached out to me and said, check this book out. You should have this guy on, first time author, bad timing. Uh, And in a second, you're going to hear my interview with him. Uh, We went into what it's like, you know, to put a book out. Uh, At the start of a pandemic. Uh, Spoiler alert. It's not good. And we talk about tanking. And he's not a hockey guy. So I got to tell him about the Sabres in 2015. And the incredible tanking that went on here. And we compared it to the Sixers and his book. And it's actually a really fascinating interview. I loved having him on. And uh, I'm excited for you to hear it. So that's next. I'll be back on the other side. We'll read some plugs. Uh, And then we will be on to one last thing. All right, our next guest today is from New Rochelle, New York. He's making his debut on the sportscast. It's today he writes about the NBA for Bleacher Report and has a new book about the Philadelphia 76ers out. Let's bring him to the show. It's a first-timer. Make him feel welcome. Yaron Weitzman. How's it going, Yaron? Thanks for uh, thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm okay, or as good as any one of these days, but uh, <laughs> thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, and I, I'm excited to chat with you about it because uh, living in Buffalo, I live in one of the um, tanking capitals of the world in sports in the last um, six years. I'm not sure how familiar you are with a word called McEichel. Um, I'm not. <laughs> okay, so I think 2000, yeah, 2015 – uh, the NHL, create, well, not the NHL, but fans of the NHL, specifically in Buffalo and a few other places, created a word called McEichel uh, because the draft uh, that next season was going to feature Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel at the um, top of the draft. And probably those are two names that you don't have to be much of a hockey fan to know Connor McDavid, probably especially, um, and Jack Eichel as well. So uh, with them being one and two, Uh, there was a huge incentive to finish last that year because by finishing last, as it was in the NHL at the time, uh, you were guaranteed one of the two, whether you won the lottery or not, because if you lost the lottery, you fell back to two. Um, Interesting, okay. So especially in Buffalo, where we pretty much assume we're not going to win anything, um, it (laughs) it was very, very important to the fan base to get into that spot of 30. Uh, the 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 um, Knights weren't in the league yet, so there wasn't 31. Um, so there was 30, and finishing 30 meant getting a generational player um, at the worst, Jack Eichel, who was assumed to be, and it's played out, is sort of the face of USA Hockey for a decade or two now. Um, so it, it got to the point where uh, people were in the arena rooting against the Sabres, you know. Um, At the end of the year, when it looked like they could finish in that 30th spot, people were going to the arena, you know, and cheering for the other team. Uh, And of course, the Sabres finished 30th, lost the lottery, like we all knew they would, and drafted Jack Eichel second overall, like we all knew they would. Um, And since then, it's the debate has raged, you know, did they let losing and... The mindset of losing destroy the awesome hockey culture in Buffalo so right? funny. and Jack Eichel has been fantastic. He may have won the uh, MVP if the season hadn't been shut down this year. probably wouldn't have won it because the Sabers weren't going to make the playoffs, but definitely would have been you know top three or four on everyone's ballot. So he's fantastic, but they haven't you know they haven't made the playoffs yet with him on the team. Uh, they ended up finishing last again and winning the lottery this time um, and drafting uh, a generational defensive talent from Sweden. Um, so, But it, it's an amazing – and I was really excited when I heard about your book to read about tanking and the NBA. And I've already talked way more than I wanted to talk or that I like you to talk to guests. But I wanted to kind of lay that out to you to show you where I was coming from going into the book. So why don't you talk a little bit about – um tanking and why you wanted to write a book about it um okay two separate questions sure. right so yeah, I, always let's start there, like, I
3: let people well I'll just because i always think i let people down when like the where i came from you know i get asked that i was that that a good amount, and like how i decided to write this book and like the unfortunate <laughs> is i kind of reverse engineered a book idea um was part of it right <laughs> that was one of the things where like i was covering the nba for bleach report in new york um, around 2017, 2018. And my job there is a national writer. And I say that not to make myself sound more important, but just so the idea of sure. uh, the job is to find, uh, to find a uh, that would resonate with a national audience. Um, being in New York with the Knicks, that was not happening. So I had to start <laughs> going elsewhere. So I started going down to Philly a decent amount. And I was around them for a little bit. This, I think it's the 2017, 2018 season. Um, I was around them for a little bit. And, uh, and, um, and then during the playoff run, they got knocked out. I remember thinking, oh, it seems like a good book idea. You know, tanking, more of a—I I and mean, I guess I was interested in tanking. And the the story I pitched – it's actually interesting, right? So the story I pitched was about that and the tanking and Sam Hinkie. And, like, if you look at my proposal, my book proposal, it was kind of positioning it as, like, you know, a moneyball basketball book, right? Which has become kind of a thing, right? We Like, there's an afternoon right. book like that, just the NBA team and the general managers changing how to build and stuff. Um, so yeah, I was interested in that. I just thought it was just, just I, I just thought it was just the topic was interesting. What I found more interesting about it was all the discussions about it almost. Like the conversations about tanking as opposed to taking itself and kind of like what you just said about with the with Buffalo and just wondering this culture and not, I find those conversations fascinating and more illuminating and kind of you learn a lot from that. Um, the funny part is then the book ended up being, it's about that. It ended up more being about kind of the backroom stuff and what a, what how guess one guy polarizing figure how he kind of ignited this culture war in the nba in his own facility in amongst fans and i found that to be more interesting in the book that kind of like the book ended up being very different than what i proposed which is kind of funny so i don't know if that answered
1: your questions no sure but uh what did taking to the 76ers and the fans and in the nba like I kind of, I think, it kind of laid out why it was so important for the Sabres to finish last because, you know, it's either finish last or take your chances at the lottery and not getting either of the stars, right? Where um, in basketball, the lottery system's a little bit different. Why, like, I always hear that the 76ers, it was like, trust the process, right? Maybe let's start with that. Like, what did that mean to the 76ers management? Like, what were they actually selling to the fan base? Okay, that's a good question, right? So, first of all, they never said tank out loud. Uh, right, which
3: no one says up. that. <laughs> Hinkie, yes, exactly. Sam You. it's funny, because he was both completely upfront without being upfront at the same time, which sounds like that's not possible or oxymoron, but, you know, everyone was very aware, and I guess he chose his language very carefully when he spoke, and it was very... It was on I mean, the up and up, even though he wasn't saying we're tanking. Um, the basic strategy, and yeah, it makes sense, right? The way it's broken down. And it's funny because Hinkie gets labeled, the guy, I guess, the, the GM, the guy who was kind of the architect of this, um, he gets labeled as a tanking guy. And someone else once said this to me, like, that's not, you know, someone who knows him well. Um, that's not necessarily fair. It was a, it's his team building, right? So he had come from the Houston Rockets. That's where he spent all his years before that. They never tanked. The reason they never tanked is because they had two superstars already, Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady. So why would you tank if you already have those guys? So the
0: whole,
3: right. to, to answer your question, the whole idea is it's reverse engineering a championship in a way or a championship roster. So you look through history and you realize that most championship teams have a superstar on their team in basketball, which for basketball, we kind of all know this, right? It's just the nature of the sport. Just the way only five players guys can be play the whole time. It's really, there's really no, nothing like it. I guess a quarterback may be as much sway. I guess hockey, I can't speak on hockey, but it's almost like you know, a superstar is almost the equivalent of
1: like if a starting pitcher could pitch every day, right? right. Of in terms
3: of how much sway they have over a game,
1: and I'm only um, an so most... bas- Oh, I'm sorry, I'm only an average basketball fan, but I can name them, right? I can say like you know, it was Magic and Bird with the in the early '80s with the Celtics and the and the Lakers, and then it was Jordan with the Bulls or Isaiah Thomas in between mm-hmm. that. Exactly. You know, like I can name them. LeBron James with the you know, I know those guys, I know those names, so it's that's not an accident. You know, those guys are very important. When you're only starting five, Correct. right? Yeah.
3: Exactly, exactly, right. Exactly. It's like you name them, you go through history, and it's like the yeah. teams, they, they monopolize. These guys monopolize championships. So the idea being, how do we, okay, you needed one of those guys. How do we get one of those guys? Well, if you look, usually they're drafted really high, right. and they stay with their teams. That's changed a little bit in recent years, but for the most part, up until the past five or six years, LeBron kind of changed the dynamic a little bit in terms of free agency players moving around more um, freely. Um, but really, for the most part, you need to a superstar. The way you get him is you draft him. So Hinkie's whole thing was, okay, let's go. let's go draft him. That's our quickest way to get one. What we're going to do is we're going to get swings at the plate. And that was his phrase. He looked at the draft as more of like a blackjack, right? You want the, it's, it's a crapshoot, shoot, but the idea is you want to stack the numbers in your favor. So we're not just going to have one lottery pick, and we hope we hit on him, and who knows. We're going to have four or five, and even if we miss on two or three, it doesn't matter because that means we'll end up with at least two superstars. And if we have those, everything else falls into place. So that was the basic idea. And that was what he was pitching. The idea that if you trust the process, the process is basically losing. Right. And even if we miss some picks, that's okay, because eventually the odds will work
1: out, and eventually we're gonna <laughs> eventually we're gonna have two or three of you guys. So the Sam in Buffalo was a guy named Tim Murray, who um was kind of inaffectionately known as GMTM here. And he never ever came out and said tanking or even process. But what he did was very clear. He he sold very heavily on that deadline. Any veteran player um, with a, you know, on the last year of their deal was shipped out for someone who could help in the future, right? They made a blockbuster trade for a guy named Evander Kane, um, but Evander Kane was out for the season, right? So he was going to be for the future. So... Here, it was very, very covert, very much like saying it without saying it. Never once did he get in front of a podium and say, man, we're looking to finish last so we can get Eichel or McDavid. It was not that at all. You know, it was, we're looking to build this team. We want to win a Stanley Cup. We're doing everything we can, you know, every day to put the best players in the organization. You know, it was things like that. So, um, Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. similar. Now, the debate here has been, you know, did it work? Did we... In fact, the organization with a culture um, that is very hard to leave. You know, the the atmosphere in the arena has been very, very um, bad the last few years. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, But what about – and we'll get to did it work. We'll kind of, you know, we'll finish with that. Um, I I found it really interesting. Like, the interesting thing I thought was that in the Sabres – when I was reading the book – what I was thinking about was, in the Sabres situation, they had the names. Um, it was, we want to get McDavid or Eichel. You know, with the with the Sixers, it was uh, more spread out, not as much one season. But, like, was there a specific guy that they were ever really... No. See, that that's what was really weird to me when I was reading it. I thought you were going to say no, because I, I always felt like, who are they trying to get? I never knew. It, it just seemed like they just wanted to be at the top, but not necessarily... For anyone specific, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think you know, I think he
3: would say again. It goes back to so again, some prospects are you know can't miss, right? Um, right. Like I'm thinking out of some like you got know, suck for luck, right? Andrew Luck, sure, like the rhyme yeah. like that. But so, so some prospects are can't miss, and their names rhyme with things, right? So that'd like work too. But um, but it's the yeah, I think he a lot of his thing was you know we don't know like this you don't know with the draft you don't know like the guy that ended up getting it, like this star. Joel Embiid, one of those guys, he went number three. He fell number three because he had an injury. He had had hurt his foot and Hickey was okay with him missing a year or two and other teams were not. Um, Otherwise, yeah, I mean, the part of the funny thing in one of their arguments, it's funny, it goes both ways, right? Despite all the takes, the Sixers, I believe, I think this is true. I don't think Hickey's team's ever finished with the worst record in the NBA. Um, which is pretty funny, right? And you yeah. the only team trying to lose, basically. Like, it just shows, and this would be uh, people who are supporters of his would say this is a point in their favor, that, hey, a bunch of teams to this bad without even trying to be with no plan, and it's running around like chickens without a head. Like, why are we getting killed for, why is why he getting criticized for being bad with a plan and there's a plan to come out of it, right? Which is an interesting point. Um, so, yeah, no, but there was, there was no guy. There was no, like, I don't even know. I'm trying to remember those guys who they... Like well, They, Simmons, else. they was, picked
1: Simmons, right? And they picked on. BA they picked
3: to... right they picked Simmons. So he actually and Hinky was so that was they drafted him a few months after Hinky was uh he resigned, I used the word ousted. Um okay. he, was a, he wasn't officially fired. But he's but still was, part uh, of the process, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His part. So he he was pretty can't miss. Yeah, they, but it wasn't like it wasn't like that whole time they were saying, "Oh, if we get him, then we'll turn things around." It wasn't about that. Again, it's more of like an odds game. We're gonna get these guys, and he didn't believe in timelines. It was the idea that the timeline will present itself, right? When we have the right players and their contracts are up and all that, like then we'll decide. Okay, let's shift to phase two. It's not like we're saying by 2018 we're gonna be winning 45 games. He believed. And again, I think he was right on this. If you kind of assign or set out artificial timelines, then you end up chasing things
1: and that can lead to poor decisions. Right. Simmons is so interesting because I remember, you know, all the hype and then he ends up going to LSU and not even making the NCAA tournament. I remember the year he played college basketball, he played Oklahoma and Buddy Heald. And um, I just remember that being like a big matchup and, you know, I remember Buddy playing really well in that game and Oklahoma kind of leaning on him down the stretch and him making the shots and Simmons not. And Not that it necessarily it's like a fair comparison one game. Oklahoma was, you know, a Sweet 16 team that year, maybe even a little a Final Four team, actually, losing to Villanova. Um, so it's not fair. But um, he's like the guy when I looked at when I was reading this book, like, okay, that's a name I know was like a top guy that they got out of this. You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and like you said, Embiid was injured. Maybe if he's not, they don't get him at three. Um, but it's just it was the, the most interesting part, I guess, for me was that they just did this blindly without having a guy in mind specifically. Um, you know, because when I think about the NBA draft, like I remember these huge guys, like I remember it being a really big deal to get Iverson first overall, you know, that year, or I remember yeah, Shaq, obviously, was a big one. Um You know, but I just don't remember in that period like that guy until just, you know, last year with uh, Zeon was like the most recent guy. I remember that it was like a huge deal to get number one. Maybe I'm missing someone.
3: No, I mean, yeah, it's like, if you're looking, no, Zion was the biggest guy. I'm trying to remember now, too. I think i yeah. up the NBA drafts as we're talking. But, I mean,
1: Zion was the biggest prospect, and I guess Zion would be one of those
3: guys, where right, we're talking about, Yeah, the teams are tanking for
1: Zion. The Knicks um, were big in that, right? The narrative was that the Knicks were trying real hard to get that spot. Yeah, yeah. but, I mean, Zion was clearly the biggest prospect since, I think it was a, probably since LeBron,
3: I would say. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a list of number, number one picks now. Right? Anthony Davis was like, He didn't have the same cachet. He was a big prospect. Kyrie Irving. I mean, there's some great number one picks, but
1: not guys who are necessarily thought of the same way. Right, right. right. Um, Just yeah. hands down, number one pick. Not even thinking about who might be two. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I think about the Sixers. They've been a playoff team, right? And I remember them famously losing a game seven on a pretty sick three-pointer. And it's hard to hard to blame a process on that, right? Like when you get to Game Seven of, I think that was the second round, right? Not even the first round. Uh, when you get to a Game Seven of the second round, I hope that's right. Um, and it's the final possession. You know, you're essentially a conference championship quality team at that point. So they've built the team that can compete. Did it work? Did did the was it right to trust the process? um okay so, <laughs> so it depends who you ask I, my thing is i boil it down like
3: you know i go if you're black and white i say yes right like the idea like i think so yeah the simple answer is yeah right they weren't good before they were not only were they weren't good they were mediocre i kind of have it as like stuck in basketball purgatory where you're not good enough to win not bad enough to get a top pick nobody really cares about you business-wise it's just, it's just, the word that best describes them i'm gonna use a big word here was just bleh, right? So bleh is what the Sixers were before. Um, then Hinky comes in, they give up about three years of awful. they have three years of awful, awfulness, one mediocre, and then they become a contender, basically. And this would have been, uh, I'll count this year, even though the shutdown and everything, this is year three of contention. You assume they have at least two or three more, if not more um like, i don't know if you're a fan i think that's so you trade right like that's what you want you want your team to matter that every night you care and you want to watch the game because it matters and espn first take talking about your team and you have superstars and your cover right i think that's what you want most as a fan. um and obviously envy then that happens because you have a shot at winning a championship like i can you know you can go deep on the x's and o's and discuss the issues with the roster building for the Sixers this year but just on a basic simple level they're a championship contender no, no one would argue that um or I should say very few would argue that. Um, so, yeah, that, I think it worked. There were plenty of mistakes made along the way. I'll call them the little decisions in the process, right? And I think Hinky, not even I think, I would say he made some missteps and he misjudged some of the uh, political or didn't, didn't pay enough attention to the political part of his job. And I don't mean that, you know, what and how small world the NBA business is and all sports businesses are and how people matter and things like that. But that's almost a separate conversation, right? In terms of like the strategy versus how he was executed. The strategy and the basics of it, yeah, it worked. They got two superstars. Um, they're a really good team now. Like I think it worked.
1: And you you mentioned that he was you kinda of like to describe it as ousted. And I was reading about this part yes. in the book yesterday, actually. And just like you, and you just kind of said it, like, he just didn't know how to play the game politically in terms of the NBA and the business aspect of it, right? Is that the biggest reason why you think he's not there to kind of see this through? Yeah, and I say, right, it's a, I always want to be clear, no, you're not saying this, like, and a lot of it's his
3: fault, right? He, like, he misjudged a bunch of things and he made some mistakes, right? And some mistakes and like when sometimes when you say the political part it kind of comes off as oh he's just a you know just doing a job and like you know some of these sharks got him and that's not necessarily true right he made some mistakes he didn't play he didn't build agent relationships well he didn't build relationships within his um within his building well again some of that is not his fault um i think he misjudged how much uh, he thought he had ownership stacking and he did. I think he misjudged, or I think I know he misjudged how much ownership cared about what people think, right? How much public perception would affect ownership in terms of their ability to hold off and you know deal with all losing all the questions that came with it and not make a move. Um, and yeah, there are a bunch of things. people sometimes ask, why was he? Why was he not there? And there's no one thing. I kind of described it as he was in the middle of the storm, like in the middle of a circle, and from every angle, the agents, and there's a union, and some players, and opposing owners, and the league office, and all these people were not happy with what was happening. And there were certainly areas where he could have met them a little more, halfway, but he believed in the work. I kind of come... It's not a great comparison. I don't want to get not political, but like some of the criticisms that people would have of Bernie Sanders, it reminds me of this: the idea that the job is also to get elected, Interesting. right? Yeah, like you, you can only you can only make your changes once you get the job, right? right? Like you have to do some play the game a little bit, and I think you can't just say I believe in the work, right? That doesn't—that's kind of a naive way to look at it,
1: right? Maybe like save your praise of Castro until you win Florida, you know? <laughs> right, exactly, right, right. exactly, right. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> It's Right, exactly. Uh, the book is called Tanking to the Top, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports. Uh, I have to ask you this, because this book came out on March 17th, and it's your first book. And March, <laughs> se- yeah, March 17th is basically, you know, a couple of days after we ultimately decided as a country we were going to kind of shut things down. And it's interesting because around that time, I had John Feinstein on. Uh, and John had a book uh, come out around that time as well um, about the NCAA tournament, and we're we're kind of talking about, you know, is there something to be said for this book? Is going to provide this is going to be a lot of people's tournament this year, right? They don't get to watch <laughs> a tournament, so maybe they'll read this book. And of course, it's not the same, but it's something. Um, and how that ultimately played up will probably be a conversation for next time. I'm lucky enough to talk to John. Um okay, so I want to ask you two questions. The first one is just real basic. What is it like to release your first book uh basically two days into a global pandemic?
3: Um Yeah, it kinda of sucks. I'll be right. You know, I feel like I have to add all the caveats, like, you know, there are a million other things. Yeah, and no, I mean we understand. I really that's believe given.
1: it. Yeah, it's a given.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, which I feel like you don't have to say, it, but you do have to say, it, even though like we all know. Right. So take all those out, you know, right. I'm not sick. I'm not all that good stuff. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. No, yep. it sucks. It's not, um, it's not, first of all, it does, it hurts sales for sure. Yeah. Like, I, I know some people would say, um, well, everyone's home. Like I've had a few people this good. Cause everyone's home with nothing to do. And I think that like, I, I think that, that's just if you're on Twitter following media people all like young media people all day, that seems like the case. And I'm one of the younger media people, but like as somebody with two young kids, I can tell you I don't have extra time, right? Anyone if you're a parent, you don't have extra time. Right. If you're not working a desk job, like a lot of people don't have extra time. Never mind extra money, right? so that part. Um there's also a the few things. There's also the part where like, you know, like I wanted to like have a party, right? It sounds silly. But like all that little stuff but you just kinda of miss out. Usually yeah. Zoom calls and things like that and they're not the same right like my first zoom i did actually i it was i got used to it a little bit i've done like i don't know half a dozen now the first one i did it was like that first week and everyone's kind of figuring it out and like you know now we're all zoom uh experts i'd say but then sure. i was not and like you know make, you're making jokes that everyone's muted and you're like oh this thing i like, it's just some weird situation <laughs> you know um so there's that yeah the, that part um it's also been weird not seeing the fixer since the book came out that's a separate thing but it's just been strange um like you know normally you go it's like the cliche but you show up in a clubhouse the day after the locker room if you actually negative and the book's not all negative but there's right. some stuff in there. You that, show your face people yeah. not love you show your face it's been weird that like that's just not a possibility um so yeah no it's been strange and not great and a little disappointing like nothing horrible all fine you know the books are fine um but you yeah, know it's, it's deflating i guess maybe that's the right word right have you heard from any
1: sixers since it's been out Layers. I have not no, I have no. not,
3: which I have not no, which is a little weird. I yeah. got uh I mean I'm trying to see how much you can how much like I've sent I've sent copies to a couple people But I yeah. thought were deserving of, you know, the opportunity to read it. Um so no, I have not heard from uh <laughs> I have not heard from anyone. It's again it's very strange and I know like I they aware and like I know some people are not happy, but no, I have
1: not like I have not heard directly from anyone. Jeff Proman and I have talked a few times on the show. I don't mean to be like some name dropper because like, now I said fine scene and some people. not like an asshole. But um no, just like we've talked about before about how like how isolating it is to write the book and then when it's finished, how excited you are to kinda then be everywhere and promote it and Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I feel bad that you haven't, you know, been able to totally um get that part out. Uh, the book is available, you know, like an e book um, if you can't get out to a store to buy it, you know, you can go to the, the books, that orange app that you might not be sure why it's loaded onto your iPhone that says books under it. Um, you can actually buy take it to the <laughs> top there. Um, or you can get an audiobook version there or on Audible or you can, you know, go to Amazon. Um, Keith Law mentioned some site where you can buy the book and it buys it from like an independent bookstore. Yeah, I think bookshop. Right, I book saw this shop. recently. I yeah. saw this. Right, I think that's
3: what it is. People say I have not used it. People say, people say it's great. You know, people online, the people say right, it's great. I right. have no idea, but I would say try that. Yeah,
1: yeah. So if that's uh, one way you want to get it, you can do it that way. Again, again, the book is called uh, "Tanking to the Top: uh, The Philadelphia 76ers, and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports." Uh, thanks. I appreciate this. Um, anything else you want to plug or say about it? Maybe give your Twitter or anything else you want to mention before I let you go. No, I mean, yeah, I think it was, I think if you're a basketball fan, you'll
3: enjoy the book, and I think even if you're just not a basketball fan, you want to hear some. Uh, someone described it one of the reviews as like an H.R. melodrama drama, which I thought was great. So, uh, if you if you're interested in that, check
1: it out. No, you can read my stuff at Bleacher Report. Um, see me on Twitter. Yeah, it's one of those books. Is I'm not a basketball guy, but I enjoyed. Reading it. it's one of those books where like it's not necessarily about basketball, like James Andrew Miller's ESPN book wasn't necessarily about ESPN. It, it was, but it's also about business and the start of cable. Or you know uh, Blake J Harris's book, awesome book called uh, what the hell is it called? Uh, I don't remember, but it's about the ri- rivalry between Sega Genesis and Nintendo. It's not necessarily about video games. It's again about business and things like that. So don't mm-hmm. be fr- if you are not a big basketball guy. We do have a lot of hockey fans to listen, You know, it's, it's not necessarily gonna. Kill you to read it because uh, it's a great story about business and politics and sports and um, and the draft and building through the draft. So um, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, hopefully the games start up soon and you can um, can get out there. The nice thing is the paperback still got to come out, right? So maybe that can be kind of you <laughs> the of Yeah, <laughs> the you second go. wave, and you can uh, can can do what you would have done and didn't get to do this time that time around. Hopefully nobody will push a paperback as hard as I push that (laughs) paperback. All right, well, hopefully we can have you back during that time and talk some more about it. I appreciate you. Sounds good. I appreciate you having me on. All right, it's time for one of those breaking down the fourth wall moments of the Sportscasters. I have seven minutes to finish this segment, and then I need to call Jane. So we're going to blow through this quick. Thanks to Yaron Weitzman and to the great Jane Levy for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this episode and all of the episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com sports casters. You can also find us on Twitter where we're at sports underscore casters because someone who hasn't tweeted in over 4,000 days has at sportscasters. Uh, Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. And as my friend from Greetings from Allentown, Peter always says, five-star reviews on Apple is appreciated because it shows social promotion or something. Don't forget about Greetings from Allentown. At GF Allentown pod is his new episode. And I know he loves... This episode, it's about family feud and wrestlers appearing on it. Check it out. I'm sure his passion uh, will be screaming from it. Uh, Don't forget Adrian Dater at a Dater on Twitter. His website, Colorado Hockey. Now I was recently on his podcast. Um, So check that out. It's got maybe like Jeremy. I got rings in my ear. Some weird name, but I'm sure you can find. At, dater, or at a dater, you can find information on it. And I actually um, retweeted the link as well. And also, I was on a podcast called The Jenny Position, drive-in, uh, Drive-In Theater, Drive-In Horror Theater. I retweeted this as well. A really talented podcaster named Jennifer Smith had me on. We watched the movie The Sixth Sense, and I did a lot of goofing. Uh, so if you're into that, uh, check that out. All right. One last thing for today. Obviously, there's not a lot of time. I have to talk to um, Jane in a second. You know, I think all the time about this segment, you know, and what I'm going to do, uh, what I'm going to talk about, who I'm going to talk to. And it's hard because I think about Howard Stern, and I'm a big Howard Stern guy. Obviously, I haven't listened really since 2013, and once already left in 2009, between 9 and 13, I didn't listen to much anyway, but I haven't listened to anything new other than a clip here or there, but certainly not tuning into the show. Uh, But he makes a point in his movie about how he was only doing so well, and then he started doing really well when he started being completely honest. And I try to do that here, but I know I'm holding back. I know I'm holding back about things like politics and um, even some things in my personal life. Even though I've been very open about that, especially my own health, uh, but I've still I still very much hold back. And there's still a level of honesty that I haven't approached. And I wonder sometimes is that is that what is holding the sportscasters back? Is my inability to totally be myself and to totally put myself out there you know sometimes people will say you know i love when you have jeff perlman on and you guys just talk and just chat about whatever and that's a case where usually i will let myself get out there a bit with my political opinions things like that and people like it but how come on one last thing like how come right now i'm not screaming about what I think about coronavirus from the political side of it, because we're fooling ourselves if there isn't a big political piece to this. Why am I talking about that? Why don't I talk about my political beliefs in general? Why am I talking about what's happened with my family in the last six months? Well, I know I'm probably not talking about it because I want to protect my mother, but why am I not doing that? Shouldn't I be able to? Isn't this my thing? Why am I holding back? And if I didn't hold back, would this show be better? Am I sacrificing where the show could go because I won't totally let myself go and do this podcast? And I, I don't know. I have to think about that. It, it, it's something that I need to reflect more on. And it's something that when I, I I've said before, I really worked with my brother, Greg on these one last thing segments. And what I meant with that is I used his encouragement uh, to push myself to be honest in these segments and to be personal. To use these segments last to talk about other things that might usually come up in the course of the show and to use them to talk about my life and to be more personal and give you a glimpse into me. Now, when Don and I would do this show, There was a lot more of that in the three things segment and the other things that we would do. Since it's become a show that I host alone and and really focused on interviews, there's been less of me. Sometimes three, four-minute segments in the beginning, quick book club, which is almost never about me, then the uh, one last thing at the end. So it was really important to me to use one last thing to make sure I still had a voice on my own podcast. But am I going far enough? I don't know. Uh, I do know uh, that I want to. Uh, I do know that I want the sportscasters to be the place uh, where I express my fears, my concerns, my beliefs, my emotions about being a parent, a son, a husband, and a citizen. Uh, So I pledge to you today uh, that I take this seriously, that I'm going to continue to try to push myself in the direction of being more honest, of not holding back, of giving you everything I have. I'm going to challenge myself and do my best. Uh, You can always email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. You can always tweet me at sports underscore casters. I never fail to respond to a message in either spot. Thanks for listening today. Stay safe. See you next week.